Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Todd Cashton. He is Professor of Psychology at George Mason University. He has been named Distinguished Faculty Member of the Year at George Mason University and received the American Psychological Association's Distinguished Scientific Award for Early Career Contribution to Psychology. He is a world-recognized authority on well-being, strength, social relationships, stress, and anxiety, and he's the author of several books, including the one we're going to focus on today, The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. So, Dr. Cashton, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. It's the perfect match, the dissenter. Thanks for having me. Yeah, 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 that's right. I was about to say that perhaps this will become the official book of the dissenter because, <laughs> <laughs> because of the title of the show. So anyway, uh, so let's start with that. Um, so what is insubordination or how do you define it? Because I guess that uh, there should be productive and unproductive ways of being uh, an insubordinate or a dissenter in this case. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I intentionally took a perceived negative and looked at it at, from the from a scientific lens to show insubordination is a positive. Just as you said, it could be reckless, it could be problematic, it could be healthy. The the core of insubordination is within a power structure. So you've got the the CEOs at the top, you've got the teachers at the top in a classroom, you have the parents at the top in you know, in a, in, a, in a household setting, and that it's someone who is willing to disobey their commands, their orders, the norms of that power structure. And the idea of principled insubordination is you're doing it because you recognize there's something wrong with that power structure. There's some dysfunctions, there's some problems, there's some things that can be improved, and you're not waiting to get a highfalutin position or a lot of money or prestige or the platform and the microphone shoved in front of your face, you are speaking up because you see something that can be improved for you, other people, or the longevity and health of the group. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, over the years and the past decades, I guess, and particularly in perhaps the 50s, 60s, 70s, people in psychology have been focused uh, a lot on conformity. For example, we have the Solomon Ash experiments, the Stanley Milgram experiments. But I mean, with the knowledge we have today, to what extent can we say that people are really conforming? Uh, I'm so glad you hit the classic studies because one of the things that got me into writing this book or spending six years of studying the literature is for the Solomon Ash study, we focus on, we have, I mean, we have black and white footage where mm -hmm. you've got a participant comes into a group, it's four other people that are standing there that are stooges or actors, and those four people are saying that two lines that are com very clearly visually are not the same length, they're saying they're the same length. And the question is, when it's your turn, do you say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm gonna deny what my eyes say and say, the four of you are right to conform. Now, what they don't often mention is that in those studies, over 20% of people throughout on every single trial say, no, the four of you are wrong, 
and you guys are ridiculous. It's obvious that those other two lines are the same length. And then in the Stanley Milgram studies, where you have, you are basically trained to be the, the teacher, and if the learner gets something wrong, the instructor tells you, you gotta shock them. And as they get more and more things wrong, you shock them at higher and higher voltages. That you have about one third of people in those studies who at some point say, no, I'm not going to shock the person. So when those news media reports came out and said, wow, this is like Auschwitz, um, you know, this is like the French Revolution in terms of people are lemmings. And, and there's another storyline, which is a good chunk of people. A, a, enough people are saying, no, I don't care whether you're in a lab coat. I don't care whether I'm in Yale University. I don't care if a bunch of people are going to look at me funny. I'm actually saying I'm not going to defy my own senses or my own empathy and compassion and shock somebody, I think you're wrong. And the thing about that is, when you get around 20% to 32% of people that disagree with an authority, that is a sufficient amount of people to create a social mobilization to change the system. Mm -hmm. But uh, I mean, have, the, have these studies been replicated, for example, and do people control for variables like, for example, personality yes so um those early conformity studies in the 60s as well as um replications in the in the 70s and 80s they control for personality factors and in general you see similar effects there are some personality traits that make it more or less likely that you're going to conform mm. so we know that if you're in high intelligence that doesn't mean you're any less likely to conform we know that if you have uh high in trait impulsivity if you are high in openness to experience, um, if you are high in the need for cognition, which means you really enjoy deep cognitive explorations about existential angst and, you know, what if you grew up in Sri Lanka as opposed to where you were raised at the time? What if you had one parent instead of two? If you're that type of person, you're less likely to conform. Um, but those Personality traits have a very small correlation with conformity and nonconformity, which makes sense because it really depends on the parameters in a situation in terms of to what degree do I care about your opinion as the authority figure and to what feel a sense that my group membership is a core part of my identity. If it's not, I'm more willing to disagree, not just to be like an annoying prick, but because I care about the group so much that I think it could be better. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's Dominic Packer's work. Yeah, but, but just to be clear, in this particular case, being more or less confirming doesn't have a strong correlation with intelligence itself, right? Because, I mean, people usually, particularly if they are more intellectual, let's say, sometimes it's very easy to look down on uh, people that are not very, uh, that not score high in IQ, for example, or that are not intellectually minded, let's say, and say that they are just sheep and they are the herd and they just follow what other people tell them. But uh, I mean, there's not that high of a correlation between intelligence and being more or less conforming or, 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 or is there? I'm so glad that you're hitting this. I think this is an important thing. If we think about, you know, we talk a lot about 
liberals and conservatives and this political divide in the country. But really the big divide is between people that are elites or feel that they're elites and the rest of society. And Dan Kahar at Yale has shown so much great work that you find more motivated reasoning in people that are high in intelligence compared to lower in intelligence, which means that, uh, and, his, and his framework is because you are high in cognitive ability, you are really good at constructing great rationalizations and arguments to say for either side. I mean, just think about debate clubs, right? When I was a kid in a debate club, we would say, um, should we or should we not be using nuclear energy because we're running out of oil? This was like in the 1980s. And if you were high in intelligence, which was not me in these debates, you would randomly get assigned a position. Okay, so you're for nuclear energy. Okay, you smart person on the other side, you're against nuclear energy. And part of being a good at debating and good at rhetoric is that it doesn't matter what side it is, you're good at constructing arguments. And with knowing that about debate teams, when you are left to your own devices and you're reading social media and you're hearing people's opinions, you are good at arguing either side. And so Dan Kahar has shown that the people that are higher intelligence are not lower in motivated reasoning, which means they alter their standards of evidence depending on what they believe in. So if I believe that pulling down statues in the past is a good thing because if they were racist during periods where almost everybody was racist, if I believe that, I will search for articles that support my view and believe that they are have greater evidence behind them than arguments that say um, keeping those statues so we can see the problems in the past and improve the present and future is a good thing. I'm going to downgrade those articles. Intelligent people are better at finding flaws. Flaws in what they don't like. Right? Exactly. That are ideologically dissimilar for what they care about. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. And perhaps they are also, because they have higher cognitive ability, they're also better at producing convincing arguments against what they don't like or are or is ideologically against their side. Right. Yeah. So, Ricardo, you so I love that you went there because there's not that much science on this. You would hypothesize that cognitive ability alone would not lead to better crafting of messages that are ideologically similar to you to persuade other people mm -hmm. than ideologically differ. It, it would probably be, I would hypothesize, I'd like someone to do this study, that it's a, it is a interaction that if you are high in cognitive ability and high in um, perspective getting and taking and empathy and compassion, it's that jagged profile that would lead to the crafting of messages that might not be fair or truthworthy and non-biased, but good at persuading other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned, for example, when we talked about the Ash and the Milgram studies, about that 20 to 32% of people who we could say, I guess, dissent from, I mean, they don't conform to what the majority say, but there's still that 70 something to 80% of people who conform. So, uh, I mean, would you say that it is hard for, uh, the, for people in general to dissent or not? Well, it, it, tremendously. I mean, because, I mean, there's great work in social psychology showing that 
when we think about our identity, it's not just our values, our personality traits, our interests, and then what are, you know, what are the things that we do in our free time? It's, it's what are the groups that we, that we believe are so important that we consider it as part of our identity and what groups do we aspire to be part of? Right. There's so many people that want to be part of Mensa because they think they're really smart people. There's so many people that want to be join online groups because here are stoics and here are psychological thinkers and here are professional coaches. And you don't need the degrees to join those groups. So if you aspire to be part of those groups, you're going to start behaving in ways that are like the tip, the prototypical group member. So if philosophers tend to be. Um, effective altruists, which is a very common movement in philosophy right now, where people are saying that objectively, what should you be sacrificing for the greater good and and be willing to remove from your own personal well-being because you care about society? So there's a lot of discussion, for example, that you don't really need two kidneys if you're over the age of 25 and you don't binge drink anymore. And so the notion for an effective altruist is probability-wise, when you think about the likelihood of being harmed by getting a surgery and losing one kidney versus saving someone's life by giving a kidney that objectively most of us should be giving away one of our kidneys. Now, I should probably say I'm not a hardcore effective altruist, but I love hearing these arguments. So you might be more inclined to conform to that view, not because you've grown up believing that, because you want to be part of that group, you want to be considered a good member with good status, high reputation, and be socially attracted. And that's a really big factor, that social pressure, that makes us more likely to conform, even when we know we're kind of not doing the best thing for us and our families. Mm -hmm. But I mean, when it comes to the kinds of uh, dissenters or insubordinates who have a positive effect on society, they sort of have to hit a sweet spot, uh, right? Because, for example, uh, I imagine that to be non-conforming, at least to the extent you need to be it, you have to be disagreeable. I mean, you have to to not feel uh, pressured to conform to what other people say. And so you have to be disagreeable, at least to some extent. But uh, at the same time, perhaps you also have to put your work, uh, I mean, to turn it into something productive for society. So you should still worry about the it, your dissenting, let's say, having positive effects on society because you could just dissent for your own sake and not care about other people, right? So there's a sort of sweet spot you have to hit there. Yeah, so um, let me hit two separate bodies of research that kind of have found some answers here. One's about the individual and one's about person within a group. So okay. at the individual level, when you think about why don't people dissent when, why aren't there more whistleblowers? You know, mm -hmm. why, you know, why in the 1970s, Frank Serpico was a New York police department officer. And he recognized that a lot of officers in the NYPD, they were accepting drugs and forcing people to give them drugs or else that they would arrest them. Or they were for prostitution. Um, they were asking for favors or else they said one person basically single-handedly brought down all of the corruption 
in the New York Police Department. How did Frank Serpico do what he did? Why aren't there more Frank Serpicos? So here's here are the two questions that somebody asks themselves when they're seeing something wrong and they're deciding, should I do something? The first mm-hmm. thing they ask is, if I if something really is wrong, why isn't anyone else saying it? Like I'm not that smart. I'm not that amazing of a virtuous person. And so they mm-hmm. they have this they have this doubt. They have this imposter syndrome. And the second thing that they ask is Am I able to handle the social persecution of disagreeing with the majority of people? Because life is freaking stressful. I mean, if these have taught us, the last thing we need to do is is add unnecessary stress of have people hating you online, hating you in the office. Um, Frank Serpico, when he went against the corrupt officers in New York Police Department, this might be, this might be a, an apocryph- apocryphal fake story, but I love it. He spoke at a grand jury trial against police officers that are taking sex and money and, and threatening people in the community. Mm-hmm. He spoke up against them. When he went back to the precinct, after speaking against police officers, nobody looked at him, but he felt that everything was revolving around him. Like it was that eerie quiet you know, that happened when he walked into the office. And a few minutes later, a police officer said, hey, Frank, um, I got to talk to you. Frank knew something was strange because of the inflection in his voice. And the guy pulled out a knife and was about to stab Frank Serpico. Frank Serpico pulled out his gun, put his revolver to the guy's head and said, listen, if you come near me again or anybody, I will shoot your freaking brains out. Now, I'm not promoting violence, but there's a conversation we might want to have here or later, which is sometimes violence is necessary. Even Gandhi, his it's, it's a not often quoted quote, which is saying when other people are about to be killed yeah. and people are unwilling to listen to you, sometimes violence is necessary. That happens yeah. there. Um, so, so in these situations, Frank Serpico was able to handle with great difficulty the social persecution. But when we hear that story, listeners of this podcast hear that story, you say, could you handle the possibility of going back to work and somebody wants to physically and literally stab you. And could you actually handle it? Most people think that they can't handle it. Most people can't handle it. But a, sm- a good a good concentrated minority of people, 20, 30, you know, something around their percent, they could handle it, but are they willing to? And part of me kind of spending six years on this literature is, can we increase people's willingness to be courageous? Because it's not something that's endowed to us. It's basically, you're gonna experience anxiety, what kind of life do you live? And it's a gift to your future self to say something and speak up because people are suffering if you don't. Yes, but I think that one part of my question with at least one part of it, I was trying to hit on the aspect that, I mean, for you to dissent, extent you have to be disagreeable, right? And not be afraid of, if necessary, hurting other people's feelings because you're going against, you're running against the tide and saying things that people usually do not agree with and find unpleasant, right? So, I mean... you sort of had to hit a sweet spot if you're try if you're someone who wants to change society for the better because i mean you could just descend out of being completely disagreeable and a jerk right yeah 
Um, so this isn't a pushback, but it's sort of a, it's sort of a question here. Um, sometimes, yes, the quarrelsome, but I wonder if it's more about can you handle the notion that you don't know how much advocacy and support you have for your view until you do something? Mm. So there's this whole body of work about, and maybe you've talked about it before on this podcast, preference falsification, where people are saying things they don't believe because they're afraid of not fitting in. And once mm. someone actually breaks that meniscus and yeah. says that they think we're going too far with diversity or, um, you know what, even though we're not supposed to talk about politics in the workplace, I want to talk about Roe v. Wade and the idea that abortion, this right, is about to be taken away after a half a century of having this right, even though the, you're breaking against the policy. Sometimes only then do you realize that a lot of people agree with you. You're not being quarrelsome. You are speaking for, for a, a large, silent, concentrated amount of people, and actually you're, it's it's really about courage as opposed to quarrelsomeness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but but I mean, it has to be accompanied by probably traits like honesty and uh, I, I mean, w wanting to arrive at the truth or something like that, or, and even some sort of uh, moral character, right? Because otherwise, as I said, you can just be a jerk or an internet troll or something like that, right? Yeah, I mean, that's right. That's like a totally different a category that's got nothing to do with principle and subordination. Now, what the weird yeah. thing about this, when you play with that, is almost everybody thinks they're principled in the moment in terms of their dissent and defiance. Yeah. And so you have to really get into the intricacies of is it principle that you're engaging in, or is it is it really your view that that's the, that you're that's the reason that you're dissenting, mm -hmm. or are you just mimicking what the group says because you the incentives are so high to just agree with the group? And what you find is when there are power shifts. So you know, th I mean, just think about the extreme example of of you know the Nazis in Germany. Is mm -hmm. there's a great there's a great book by Meyer, it's a philosophy book, and he interviews everyday people in Germany as Hitler is rising up the ranks in the in the early 20th century. And he interviews custodians and teachers and people that own ice cream parlors. And what these people are basically saying is that it was just everyday life. There was it was just you had this really strong, ardent person at the podium saying some crazy things, but they weren't that crazy in the beginning. In the beginning, it was about Germany lost World War One. How do we rebuild to become this amazing empire that Germany should be? So it was, it was German nationalism. And then, so these everyday people, these custodians and teachers were like, I like that message. Like, I love my home country. And, and, I, and I'm glad someone is strong enough to kind of really fight for Germany. And then it was like the frog in the on the pot, on the stove, yeah. you're turning the temperature, like, you know, two, two degrees more, three degrees more, four degrees more. And at some point it got a little more perverted where it was all of a sudden, yeah, and we hate the Jews. Yeah, mm -hmm. and we hate gay people. Yeah, we hate gypsies. And it was so slow that all those regular people were like, you know, he's fighting for Germany. And on the outside, everybody was seeing that how completely perverted and reckless and psychopathic this path was. But when you're on the inside, you don't realize that it requires some level of dissent because 
It's just ever so gradual. And it's really worthwhile to deconstruct principled movements and unprincipled movements to make sure of like, hey, are we are we the ice cream parlor owner in Germany in 1918? Or are you know, or are we the ice cream parlor journey? ice cream parlor owner parlor owner in 1947 where we're like whoa 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 i cannot believe this is what's happening in my country and so we have to really kind of to gauge ourselves history offers useful parameters to figure out are we in a good place or a bad place where principal dissent is needed mm -hmm. so what would you say uh, generally speaking, characterizes principled insubordination? Well, there's a few things. I mean, I created a formula just to kind of give people a head start in having a conversation. So in the numerator, the things that would be useful if they were higher are mm -hmm. one is you have to be deviating from the norms and the rules of society right now. And that's mm -hmm. kind of like, I think what you've been hitting pretty hard here. And they don't have to be at the high level of pol politics that we're talking about. It could just be, I don't want to get married. I don't want to have kids. Yeah. I don't want to go to college. I don't think that's my in the cards for me. Um, I think it's perfectly fine to have, uh, you know, no romantic relationships and just live with my close friends until I'm, you know, in my 80s and 90s. And this, that would be a great deviation from the typical behavior of what you're supposed to do, in the, at least in the United States. Now, if you go to Denmark, that's very common, right? Mm -hmm. They have these cohabitations where they have many women with their kids, without partners, who live together, and it's this amazing society. But the US has not picked up that social norm. Yeah. And what I would say from, um, you know, as I was saying of like, we can learn a lot from history. We can learn a lot cross-culturally of, of being a great artist and stealing the good social norms and structures in other societies that happen there. Um, I think what's what's important is that norms, but it's, there's a level of authenticity there. That's part of the equation, is that this is a deep cherished value of yours. You are not doing something to win social media points. You're not doing something so that you can get more Instagram followers. You're doing this because I'm willing to, at the highest level, I'm willing to die for the cause. At the more moderate level is, I'm willing to lose my job. I'm willing to lose social stature because I wanna fight for orphans. I wanna fight for reducing forest fires. I wanna fight for vegetarianism because I think it's unethical to be eating yeah. animals. And in these cases, the stakes are lower than willing to risk your life but you are willing to risk your reputation and your reputation should not be taken lightly. It's like, oh, it's just your reputation. Well, this is your calling card for every social relationship and interaction and way of making money for the remainder of your life that happens there. And the third part of the numerator in this equation that you wanna increase is, is this something to contribute to the well-being and welfare of society? And this knocks out a lot of acts as reckless or dysfunctional insubordination versus principled insubordination. And when you think about Gandhi, for example, I mean, there's one of my favorite stories of him is there was a mom that came to his house and said, listen, I have this really obese son and he can't stop eating sugar. And Gandhi says, um, well, come back in two weeks. And she's pissed off. She's like, you're Gandhi. Like, it's hard to get a meeting with you. And she comes back in two weeks and she asks again, and he's like, well, 
I need two more weeks to think about this. And she comes back two more weeks later mm-hmm. and he says, um, I had to see how hard it was to stop eating sugar myself. And then now I kind of want to work with your child about kind of what it's like to engage in self-restraint that happens there. That's authenticity and contribution. He's willing to sacrifice his own physical well-being to help this woman to help her kid. And the reason it's a good story is because we have to ask how many of us would do something remotely like that? Take four weeks out of our lives to see whether our advice is legit, it's durable, and it actually works. Think about how many scientists and how many people that have interventions, they just peddle this crap, these well-being interventions online with no evidence that they support. They don't do it themselves. And I love this idea of authenticity and contribution of, I'm not gonna tell you anything until I'm not a hypocrite, I know it works, and then I'm gonna give it to you. And that's, that's a really good lesson for thinking about the principled versus unprincipled feature there. Mm-hmm. So I want to get more into the specifics of what makes for successful insubordinates and productive insubordinates, but just to go a little bit back to conformity, because there's one or two questions that I think are important and that we haven't touched on yet. Uh, in the book, for example, you talk about four psychological boosters that fuel conformity. Could you tell us about that? Sure. I hope I can. I think I can remember at least two of them. Uh, I mean, what, one of the more in, the most interesting to me of the four, and this is, I am not going to be able to pronounce his name, name um, Chuma Olawaman. He's a, a researcher outside of Malaysia. And he doesn't get a lot of attention because, Ricardo, as you probably know, um, United States researchers are really good at self-promotion and marketing. And so I really wanted to promote his work. And he talks about one of the reasons that we engage in a bias for protecting the status quo, the existing practices, is because we have hope for social mobility. And politicians know this. And bosses know this, that if they kind of hang the dangling carrot, I'm like, listen, if you just spend two more years at Solomon Solomon and just be you know, a marketing executive, work 80 to 100 hours a week, you'll have no time for family, no time for friends, no time for romantic life. Um, you have a chance of possibly getting a long-term position here. Mm-hmm. People do this. Just, just the idea of I feel the promise of social mobility. And this is why when people ask the question, why will people vote for politicians that are interests, right? Poor people that vote for politicians that fight for higher taxes. And one of, one of, you know, one of the reasons that they do this is because they believe that with higher taxes, for example, um, there'll, be more, there'll be more jobs with better job security. And so I'm willing to pay my short-term dues now because I have hope for upward mobility later. And there's two ways of looking at this you can be very seductive at getting people to fight against their own best interests by using this strategy. And at the other end, read about this work because provide yourself some psychological armor against people that are trying to get you to do things that are against your best interest that happens. So that's one of the big factors that helps you to be conformist. Another, this isn't one of the boosters that I mentioned in the book, um, Justin Thibault, I might be pronouncing his name wrong, but he talks about a new model for why people are conformists. It's because they care about other people. 
The reason that I might be conforming and engage in very predictable answers when I'm in a conversation with you is because I want you to have a, a low energy, easy interaction with me. So if you ask me, you know, what are the things that predict conformity? And I say, ice cream and pizza. And I pause. Well, I just made the interaction really awkward for you. So you use more, you use more, you know, mental energy. You're kind of, you're burning more glucose. I might make it awkward and anxious for you. You don't know how the hell to respond that goes in there. So we often, as a gift to other people, we engage in very conformist, predictable behaviors because it makes it easy on other people. We're pro-social people. Like we let most people like other people and we want people's lives to be pretty good. Even though that we like to highlight, you know, all the evil psychopathic characters in the world. And the world functions well with a good, uh, conformity is a good thing in general. It leads people to be able to understand if we drive cars on the road and there's only a yellow dotted line, you will at 65 miles per hour, the amount of trust you have to have that people will conform and stick between those lines when they're driving is life or death situations every single time you leave your, your house and drive a car. So conformity is, you wouldn't want non-conformity on the roadways. People, you know, I don't know what they would do, driving backwards on a freeway, I mean, driving horizontally versus vertically as they're going down roads. Like you need that level of conformity. And the same thing when we socialize with people is if people just brought up topics randomly over the course of interactions, you wouldn't be able to develop connections and develop social capital, which are your future allies and your future friends so that the life is more interesting and life has high levels of well-being. Yeah. So instead of asking you, because we've been hinting at that, what are the costs of conformity? What would you say are the benefits? Oh, yeah, that's what I was kind of hitting is there's a pro-social benefit. Society is more harmonious and more cohesive if people conform. Think about firefighters. So if if you're at a firehouse, I've never been a have you been a, I don't know if you've ever been a first line responder, a police officer or a firefighter before? No. So um, if you go to a firehouse and there's an alarm that there is a fire that they have to go to, well, there's that big, huge metal pole in the middle of the firehouse. They slide down. The reason they slide down is for speed and they have to get into that truck as quickly as possible. Make sure all the all the equipment is safe. Make sure that everything is working well. Make sure they have enough gas. Number of people. So if somebody ends up getting smoke in their lungs, there's enough people to pick up a large physical body and get them out of that house. Mm -hmm. You've got to save the savior. Yeah. Um, what you find is the more positivity, the more compassionate love in for each other of firefighters in a firehouse, the faster they are at coordinating mm -hmm. and their speed to getting at the scene of an emergency is quicker. Low levels of conformity leads to low, slower coordination and more accidents and more problems at the scene of an emergency that happen there. You want people to be like jigsaw puzzle pieces that fit together. And so there's a pro-social element where groups reach their goals quicker without dissent. But as we'll probably get to, when you have dissent, those goals, you end up having more creative ideas, better decision making, and more creative solutions. So it's a trade-off. You're trading mm -hmm. off 
speed of coordination and speed of accomplishing goals for actually effective, useful, creative solutions. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if we already have enough knowledge to definitely answer this question, but is being a dissenter or an insubordinate a matter of nature, nurture, or both? I mean, there is almost no psychological trait that is not 20 to 40% of it at the, at the group level is due to genetics. Mm -hmm. So even your, your, your political affiliations, your moral beliefs. And so in some ways, as you were saying before, when we talk about nonconformity, we're talking about, um, we're in, we're in the realm of morality. We're in, we're in the realm of, I'm willing to disagree with something because it means so much to me. This, this is your, your personal morality. Um, with that said, where almost every personality trait has about at the group level, 40% of it is due to genetics. You have about another 40% of the explanation is due to non-shared environment. And what mm -hmm. that means is those are your habits. Those are your behaviors. Those are your, your unique environments and unique people that you get exposed to the books you've read, the podcasts you've listened to, the movies you've seen, the conversations you've had. That's, you know, Ricardo's personal background in that way is unlike anybody else. And that accounts for 40% of, you know, what happens at the population for creating conformity or nonconformity. Um, and so in there lies the secret for becoming nonconformist, which is what you engage in on a regular basis becomes who you are. The, if you want to create a fulfilling life, the building blocks are, are as simple and profound as fulfilling moments. And if you want to be a brave person, it's not whether you have brave parents that were part of the civil rights movement in the 60s and 70s. It's that when you see people being bullied and harmed, what do you do? Do you approach, say something, pull them out, defend them? Or do you avoid and say, you know what? life stressful enough as it is my hands are shaking let someone who's less anxious deal with this right now and it doesn't really matter what you do at any given moment but the pattern over the course of time the distribution of moments that you choose co over cowardice and apathy makes you a courageous person it's not about being courageous across the board in every situation you tend to lean towards courage over apathy and cowardice when faced with difficult situations when your butt's on the line and someone else's or your well-being is on the line. Mm -hmm. So tell us what are the main principles that orient or should orient the behavior of successful insubordinates? Well, there's a little bit of difference of depending of how much power you have in the situation. Okay. Right. So if you are the dictator and in some ways, you know, some parents are the dictators of their child's lives, you could just get people to comply. So I can just use, you know, put my foot down and, and, you know, raise my voice and threaten to take everyone's video screens and their phones and say, listen, you're not going to use profanity every more anymore in my household. So if you have power, the path is really simple. Um, force people to agree with you. Now, so this, you know, the, the idea of principled insubordination is about what if you don't have power and status? What if you don't have the numbers? 
What if you're from a marginalized group and it doesn't look like me and you, right? You know, you're a woman, you know, you're a little person, you're in a wheelchair, you're deaf. Um, In in these situations, there's a, the strategies are different. So one of the strategies that's really important that is from the work of William Crano and Charlene Nemeth in California is you have to show that you are, you understand the in-group that you're trying to change. So if, if you end up being, um, if you end up being part of a political party and you feel is that money from donors is perverting what we do and what we stand for and you, and you want to say, listen, let's have a campaign where we take less money from people that have more than $500,000, make it so it's $5 increments only. So the little people are the ones who's getting who we're listening we're listening to what they say we're listening to what the what's important to them to change their lives for you to say that in in 2022 in politics is a huge dissent from the machine but for you to say that you have to show that i'm one of you i'm not a mole in the inside trying to ruin your political party i'm one of you so you show that over the course of time i have sacrificed my time these are the things that I've done for the party. These are the things that I volunteered for. These are the things that I've, that in terms of my money, my time, my effort, my relationships that I've developed, I'm one of the team. I'm a good team member that happens there. And don't be afraid to be humble. By doing that, people are like, oh yeah, you know what? Yeah, you are one. I'm sorry, I forgot about those things that you did um, back in the last campaign. And when you do that, you get what's called Sharon Brem calls idiosyncrasy credits. And it's like uh, credits in a, like a video game. And you can spend them to, to be an outlier and you can spend them to be a little bit of a weirdo and do things that are against the grain. But to, in order to spend your weirdo credits, you have to collect them and you have to remind people that you earned the right to dissent from this group. Mm-hmm. So let's say that you're an insubordinate and you want to fight for a cause, but you can't do it alone. You have to recruit allies. What kind of people should you, should you seek out for and how should you go about developing relationships with them? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, there was an article today in the New York Times talking about how many close friends do we need to actually function well in society? And the number they got to was your inner circle should have three to five transforms your life. And a lot of people, like over 20% of the world has far less than three than three to five friends in their lives. The way to cultivate friendships, um, one of the, you know, one of the interesting paradoxes is share the things that are difficult with you in your life. Um, not immediately. Um, but when you, but once you get to know somebody, and if something is bothering you, your kids are annoying you, your romantic partner is annoying you, you're, you know, you're having a hard time at work, you're having a hard time concentrate. These are where people bond, and people bond also over shared hatred. You know, when you think about, like, I don't know what sports you're into. If you're into professional football or well, uh, so- soccer mostly. I figured from Portugal. So, yeah, yeah. So, for, so for professional soccer, I mean. You can bond over the team you like, but it's really the, the nemeses 
of like seeing them suffer, seeing them lose, like seeing them like go down where they have these really fun conversations. of like, oh my God, how exciting was that to see them go down in a shutout, like lose five, nothing that happens there. In the same vein, we bond really intensely through pain, through shared pain. This is why when you join a fraternity or you join a special ops in the military, that the, the hazing ritual is so long and intense, you know, phys- physical endurance, like can you handle being d- derived, you know, bereft of food for three consecutive days? It does a number. I mean, you start to disassociate. Um, the lack of sleep, lack of sleep ends up making you kind of like, you know, um, have a lack of intelligence. Um, but when you do it together and you're bonding over that, you remember that they supported you, they were with you. And so when things are just okay, you know that they're going to be there. And when things are bad in the future, you know they're gonna be there. And the way our brains work with allies is that when we think about what is our jagged profile of strengths, like what am I good at? What am I mediocre at? What do I suck at? We don't just do a a self-evaluation. We think to ourselves, okay, I can call Ricardo at any time um, he has pointed questions. He has a really healthy level of skepticism. What would Ricardo do in this situation? If we're close friends, I can, I can mimic and imagine what you would do. And so in some ways, your healthy skepticism and deep insightful questions becomes part of my repertoire. And I can, so if you are, if you have close trustworthy people in your social network, those people count when you think about your strengths, your social capital, and then the degree to which you think you can persevere and take on challenges. So we want people that are not replicants of our own strengths, but have different jagged profiles because they expand the arsenal of psychological tools and social people that we can contact, use and network with in our own world. Uh, by the way, I mentioned soccer, but just to bond with my North American audience, I also follow American pro wrestling. So <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's that's rare. Usually, there's a that is not something that people often admit to in their adult lives. So respect to you for that. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, there's I guess that there's not lots of uh, intellectuals that follow pro wrestling, but well. Anyway, <laughs> well, there, well, there's something beautiful about pro wrestling and mixed martial arts. I mean, I used to be a wrestler in high school. Um, oh, okay. And and the the beauty of it is that when you go into the ring, I mean, it's kind of like Teddy Roosevelt's, like you know, the arena. Is that when you enter that ring, you have so much anxiety walking up to it. I mean, this person in that ring wants to kill you, and there are enough rules in mixed martial arts where they can almost kill you. They can kick you in the throat. I mean, they can, you know, they, you know, they can kick you in the face. I mean, just the idea that that is a legal, acceptable way of behaving in the ring is, I mean, no human can go in there with uh, pure equanimity. But when the doors close and you're in there, often people's anxiety disappears and it's pure courage and adrenaline. And it's a really nice, it's a really nice um, metaphor for thinking about dissenting where the most anxious part of dissenting is not when you actually say the words, it's the anticipation. How are people gonna respond to me? How much scorn and rejection am I gonna get? Do I think I can handle it? Is it too much? Is it gonna be too much because I already have a full plate of responsibilities on my calendar? If we can 
mentally forecast the future past the anticipation and imagine what it's going to feel like after knowing we got it off our chest and we said it that's that that simple strategy of forecasting after it happens is a strategy that can make us have men, more mental fortitude to lean towards dissenting over being quiet mm -hmm. so one of the things as a dissenter or insubordinate you usually go through is lots of distress so what are the best psychological tactics to deal with it so the one i just mentioned was the mental forecasting um, another strategy comes from ethan cross which is self-distancing and that's the notion of you can there's a young Ricardo, there's a present day moment Ricardo, and then there's a future Ricardo. And we often forget to think about what can we do now, train for now, to make the life of future Ricardo better. And so if, when we think about that there is this, I mean, there really is gonna be a 50 year old Ricardo and a 60, hopefully, and a 60 year old Ricardo. I hope, say, I hope. <laughs> yeah, and we say to ourselves, okay, what would lead to the most pain and suffering or the most sense of meaning and purpose for future 60-year-old Ricardo. We know from the science, and we know that it's the regret of inaction is much more painful and long-lasting than the regret yeah. from action. And so we have to think to ourselves, 10 years from now, what will we say to ourselves if we don't say, speak our piece and say, you know what? This jokes about this, about this newcomer here like making fun of them, you can tell that it's actually hurting them, it's affecting their performance. And while it feels good for their tormentors, I'm gonna say something even though I might actually like kind of uh, lose access to being invited to the happy hour, the lunches. And they're gonna think like, oh, Ricardo, why are you so serious? You know we're just kidding. But you know that, that, that the person, the newcomer in that group is being tormented. And when you speak up, you are giving a gift to the future Ricardo who's going to say, I'm so glad I was the type of person who said something and I didn't engage in cowardice. So that's an important psychological strategy of self-distancing. And another form of self-distancing is to recognize that when we have thoughts such as, if I speak up in this meeting and tell the boss that they're going in the wrong direction and, he's, and they're going to get pissed off at me, remind yourself of like, I'm having the thought that my boss is gonna be pissed off at me. You did not predict the future. You don't know what they're going to say. Just remember is that your forecasting about what someone is gonna do is a pure guess that happens there. And when you can see that I'm just having a thought and sometimes my mind is not always right, you feel less strained in the moment, more resilient, and you're more likely to, to, to move towards taking action as opposed to inaction. Mm -hmm. What about psychological flexibility? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the first questions you want to ask yourself are, what are the core values, strengths, and people that I have in my arsenal? Mm -hmm. And, and, and you, want to, you want to have clarification. You want to be able to verbalize what your values are. Do you value creativity? Um, do you value taking care of your, um, your closest friends? Do you value respecting and honoring your ancestors? Mm -hmm. um, do you value kindness? Um, do you value hard work? Uh, do you value a life free of pain and suffering? Do you value a life of excitement and pleasure? Depending on what your configuration of values is, um, determines what's going to be the foundation for making tough decisions when there's competing options. If you don't know what your values are, 
it is harder to make decisions and they're often more random. And if you don't know what allies you have at your disposal or are reminded of them, you're more inclined to think to yourself, I am a minority of one, I'm going in by myself, and that is ridiculous because when have you ever seen any war story over the course of human history where one single Spartan, one single allied person, you know, one single person in the Korean War stopped anything? Like you need an infantry. And so the first question is, what's at my disposal in terms of psychological strengths? What are my core values? What's my social capital? that allows you to be more psychologically flexible. It starts with the inventory. Do an audit of what's at your disposal and, and keep, keep to yourself easy things that prime those psychological and social resources. So on my phone, for example, um, I have like a little note that lists all of my closest friends. And mm -hmm. so I can just look at that and be like, you know what? I'm not going in this alone. Like I've got, I've got about 15 people in my wise council at my disposal, I can call them right after this. I can call them right before. I can text them, somebody's gonna offer me something. I, I feel that, I know that, so I feel stronger. And so that's part of the, the initial phase of psychological flexibility. The second phase of that is taking inventory of, as I think about possibly dissenting, whether that's behavior or whether that's saying something, which is a behavior. Um, what are the unwanted thoughts feelings, memories, sensations in my body that come up. Mm -hmm. um, you want to know, like, what do you typically do when you feel uncomfortable, when your legs are shaking, um, when you can't make eye contact, when you have this thought of, God, Todd, when you, when you talk when you're anxious, you stutter, you fill your, your sentences with verbal graffiti, um, you, tend, you, you tend to use a lot of profanity. Uh, you don't want to be talking around these people. These people are too important. It happens there. So I might self-deprecate. I might avoid. That might be my natural response. And so I might go back to that inventory and say, you've got strengths. You've got social capital. You know what your values are. And that's going to make me more inclined to lean towards, despite the presence of current pain, that I'm willing to do something there. And a lot of people don't know what their values are, except for saying of, they might say of like, this is my, these are my political views, but that's not, those aren't your values. It's what are your views that led you to lean toward that political party? You got to dig deeper. The values are untouched by trauma and stressors. You could lose your job. You could lose your kids. Um, you could lose money. Your values remain the same. They're, they're intact. And, that, and knowing what they are allows you to make tougher decisions. Mm -hmm. So in the realm of insubordination, we also have people like, for example, political rebels. Let's say that we have a group of rebels that are able to mobilize at least enough people and they overthrow a tyrannical government and then they get into positions of power. So what should they be careful about when they get there to not become themselves what they've just overthrown, for example? Yeah, this is, this is really important because we know from the work of um, Dr. Prislin in University of California, California system, that we tend to become moral hypocrites as soon as we gain power and status. Mm. And you're seeing this across the political spectrum. 
you're, you're seeing this in big business. Um, as small businesses gain traction, you know, Amazon and YouTube and Alphabet slash Google and Facebook, they weren't always these big tech titans. Yeah. So we have information. We know what they were like, what, what their views were, what their mission statement was in the beginning. It morphed over the course of time. And in the beginning, when it was all about connecting people, the Facebook, the social media companies, the Twitters, um, it's all about connection. We can monetize everything that happens here. And then you, you have to start asking those questions, which is uh, to what degree are we now, are we focusing on using people as a means to an end as opposed to treating them as a means in and of, as an, an end in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that these companies did this until the government started to intervene. But inside these organizations, again, deconstructing the past, we have to ask ourselves, if we end up in that situation, how do we not end up like Facebook and Twitter and monetize every single word and everyone's eyeballs and little kids keeping them on a screen as opposed to going outside and exercising? How do we not, how do we not be a detriment to the well-being of children, of adolescents, of adults' well-being and social relationships and really being about connections? and without government intervention. So one of the first strategies is set up safeguards. Set up safeguards where you have people and you have systems built in tripwires so that when you engage in behaviors that are counter to your mission and values, you will be reminded you have to pause and have conversations about why are we doing this? Do we need more? Yes, but I mean, how would you say in this case, going back to the example of the political rebels, how would you say people should try to strike that balance between conformity and tolerance for viewpoint diversity? Because the, it, it's, uh, it's very common for people to be very sensitive about the danger of being infiltrated by enemies posing as friends, right? And so after they acquire power, after they've overthrown a tyrannical government, for example, I mean, for people to be very aware uh, and conscious about the fact that there are dangers lurking around and they could be overthrown themselves and the tyrants could be could uh, become powerful again. I, I, I mean, but still it's important to have viewpoint diversity. So how should people, or is it really possible for them to strike that balance? Um, so definitely possible, definitely difficult because, re- I mean, Ricardo, you set up a really important pragmatic situation. So when I say that your prior adversaries are your potential future allies. You raise a really good point. Well, are they going to be, you know, wolves in sheep clothing? Is it going to be a Trojan horse where, yeah, they're going to protect. If we bring them in now, our previous adversaries, are they going to pretend for a long period of time and then play the long, you know, the long 13 year game of being an insider and then eventually they blow up the new system that happens there. You're absolutely right. I think, you know, I mean, one of the important things is how do you develop trust? I mean, that's, that's what this comes down to. 
How do you develop trust and how do you develop a sufficient compassion of realizing it is a very difficult situation to lose power. Mm -hmm. And it's also very difficult to have compassion for your prior oppressors. So just think about race relations in America. I mean, you have plenty of people enough. You have a sufficient number of races that exist that are very clear and are comfortable expressing it right now. But you have a number of other people that know exactly what to say, exactly what you're saying, saying all the right things, you know, uh, sheep in wolf's clothing or wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah. And are saying all the right things, but really, once they get in power, they're going to revert right back to what it was like in the 1960s in terms of mm-hmm. when you know white people were controlling everything, and this whole diversity thing is just we can stop this thing later. We'll let them pretend that we're into it now. That happens here. I think you have to you have to be very careful about slow, gradual, systematic allowances for those prior adversaries and no punishments that are excessive for the behaviors that people engaged in. They have proportionate punishments allows people to feel that you were fair. You could have been more retributive in terms of how you distilled. um, Once you gain power, how you distilled punishment to those people previously in power. When you hold back and just offer proportional punishments to what was done in the past or forgiveness or reconciliation, those gestures go a long way for someone to say, okay, I'm open to still being part of the group. Um, and so now they're open to still being part of the group because you haven't punished them too severely. What are small inconsequential gestures to show that you can give them some level of responsibility, but they don't have access to the nuclear reactor. They don't have access to the nucleus where they can blow up the system that happens there. And they then, the once the previously powerless who are now no longer in power, you allow that uh, you allow them to gain idiosyncrasy credits. What will you volunteer? What sacrifices will you make? How will you show your loyalty and trust over the course of time? And you have to allow them an opportunity to show to change. Mm-hmm. And we have to be reminded of not being the French Revolution, where <laughs> as soon as yeah. you know, as soon as the peasants got power and st- you know stormed the castle, um, they beheaded everyone. Not only everyone that was in power, but everyone that seemed to be in power. And then you have, you know, you, you've got the, you know, the Salem trials from the 1800s, where not only were you kind of looking for witches and kind of, if you denied being a witch, that showed that you actually were a witch. If you showed you were a witch, then you're clearly a witch. So it was a non-falsifiable situation to persecute everyone, and it was disproportionate to the crimes. You burned them to the freaking stake. When they said that they're not a witch because you said, well, clearly you're lying. That happens there. You didn't give the benevolence, the benevolent opportunity for them to prove their innocence. We have to allow due process when we win. We have to create a system of legality and rules such that you have to be – there must be evidence to show that you are now a someone that is a detractor as opposed to someone that's skeptical because – you were against the cause that's now in power. Mm-hmm. Yes, and uh, I mean, the French Revolu- Revolution is clearly a very good example because it's very easy for us to admire people that change the system supposedly for the better, but then get into that sort of black and white moral thinking 
where either you're on my side or you're against me if you and if you're against me i can do with you whatever pleases me and then it's right. very easy for us to justify absolute atrocities right i i think you hit something really important we have to allow human beings to be in a purgatory phase or a liminal phase where we have it we can, where i don't like what we did in the past I don't like that you didn't support this new movement that is now in power. Um, but I'm going to let you stay in purgatory where you have to showcase that you deserve to go to the heavenly, heavenly gates and have full access to the riches and resources of the current regime. And I don't – and I think you're right. It is very hard because to have this permeable boundary group where I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt – but I'm watching you and I'm collecting data continuously. I'm looking for when you suck. I'm looking for when you're good. I'm going to pay more attention to when you suck. And I'm going to allow you an opportunity to win cash prizes and opportunities. But you're really going to have to show it. And I'm also skeptical that I'm skeptical you're going to be a Trojan horse. That happens here. And I think it's good to verbalize this. I think it's good to call people out when you see behaviors that seem questionable. But I also think it's really important. I mean, we learned this from Africa with apartheid. Um, you know, Desmond Tutu, who died this year, um, or was it last year? This year, or last year. Um, to be willing to reconcile with true white supremacists that were not just take creating laws against black people in Africa, but like killing people in Black Africa for you know for you know for for just for decades. Um, for, the, for Desmond to explain, reconciliation doesn't mean that you accept their past behavior. It means that you have a contract where we've acknowledged what you've done, and I'm, I'm going to allow you not a redo, but I'm going to allow you to showcase that you are going to be a willing, important participant and co-creator of this new society where you are no longer the power figure that gets, the power figure that gets to decide everything. If Desmond Tutu and his team could reconcile apartheid, we can do this in politics for individual issues. Mm -hmm. Talking about viewpoint diversity, because this is one of the things that people also in academia, for example, are talking a lot about nowadays. Do you think? it's possible for us to develop a culture, not only in academia, but in society more generally, that is more accommodating of dissenting uh, uh, ideas and viewpoint diversity. I do. I think, I think you're, you're seeing the challenges about this. I think social media um, activates the difficulty a little bit because you're looking for short-term gains as opposed to long-term transformation. And so as long as people are trying to win points and arguments immediately, you're not playing, you're not focusing on the end game. The end game is, can we increase the reservoir of knowledge, wisdom, and make better decisions? As long as you have only, as you said before, you break it down to just two groups, the good guys and gals, and the bad guys and gals, where you've got the people that are, for diversity are the good guys and gals and the people that are raising questions of, but are the tactics and strategies effective for, for the long-term viability of organizations? 
they're if you if you label them as the bad guys and gals as opposed to people that are value diversity but are asking questions about are there better strategies and tactics you have to be careful about putting them in the same category as people that are anti-diversity and you also you have to have a category of people on of in both of these groups or all three of these groups where I am pro-diversity. I believe that there's if you're if you are not supporting and advocating for diversity, you are anti-diversity. There's no compassion there. There's no mm -hmm. compassion of of it might be someone that has preemies. It might be someone that has having three jobs. It might be someone that's taking care of their their parents with Alzheimer's. When we don't access the full wholeness, the holistic nature of other people, we will always create these very unfortunate stereotypes that are often way off the mark in terms of how good or how bad are you. And we really have to just spend a second and ask ourselves before we label people of which side you're on, which is like, to what degree do I know your angle and perspective that you're coming from? And so when this conversation started to rise about anti-racism, which was that not only you are a racist unless you are advocating constantly for diversity and fighting racist practices, this, when you think about the jagged profile of values people have, it might be important, but it might be 12th on their list. And that doesn't mean that they don't care about it. It just might mean I care about my grandparents first. I care about my kids first. I care about my physical health first. I care. I care about like um, climate change first. I care. I care about um, oil production and oil prices first. Um, and I care. You know, I, I care about economics first. Now, this doesn't make you a bad person. It just means that you want a sufficient variety of people that are focusing at the, at the helm different issues. If everybody was focusing on diversity as a number one, two, or three of the 35 issues they care about, guess what wouldn't be happening? You wouldn't have infrastructure improvements. So highs, highways would break down, um, you know, electrical grids would break down, and you wouldn't have people focusing on the treasury in terms of inflation that goes on there. So there are other issues that are concomitant with diversity. And I'm just using diversity as an example. Mm -hmm. You know, you insert Mad Libs blank, any other topic. We want viewpoint diversity because there are more views and issues that are happening simultaneously. If you want to create a utopian society, well, you better be focusing on orphans. You better be focused on people that are starving. You better mm -hmm. focus on people that don't have homes right now. And it's important to think about the lack of diversity over the past few hundred years in organizations. But it's not the only issue. And academia, for some reason, has this myopic idea that there's only like two or three issues that are happening in society right now. If you were to read, you know, the Chronicle of Higher Education or go to a faculty meeting, and this happens in organizations as well. Um, I want people who care about issues and are knowledgeable on issues to focus on those issues first mm -hmm. and pay attention to other ones, but you can't expect everyone to do everything. It has never been feasible and never will be feasible. Yeah. So what would you say, generally speaking, are the benefits of having insubordinates in society? Oh, man, it's it's so underappreciated. I mean, this is why you have this podcast, which is why I love you. Um, <laughs> you, know, the, you. I mean, 
the three big ones, um, and a lot of this is from, you know, Charlene Nemeth's work has been amazing on this, which is even it's so let's let's play with the same topic. I realize this is like a hot button issue right now. So let's play with the diversity topic. Um, let's say I'm in a meeting in an organization and we're talking about we want to make sure that there's 13 percent of non-white people on the board because there's 13 percent of black individuals in society in the United States might be 14% in case someone wants to correct me in, in uh, comments. Um, and let's say that, that I, that I make a statement in that meeting, which says, I don't know, because, um, do we have enough people of little people? Do we have people that are uh, physically disabled? Do we have people that grew up in low income housing and are now the first generation to be working, um, in a company? that's you know, in, a, in a white collar company. And I raised that question, maybe it's not about race only. How do we account for that? Even if you disagree with me as a dissenter, just that I raised that issue, it makes people think about more possibilities before they close on a solution. So now you're talking about the reservoir of creative ideas increase, even if you think I'm an asshole, even if you think that I am absurd with my ideas, even if you think that like I am intolerant and I am discriminatory, still everyone is thinking of, let's look for more information outside of where we were looking before, before we make a decision. Also, just even if you disagree with me, what happens, people spend longer to think about the costs and benefits of each alternative possibility before closing on a decision. And those decisions are more likely to be creative. And people are more likely to check in on their biases, less likely to engage in confirmation bias, motivated reasoning, and emotional reasoning. And that last one's pretty important, which is reasoning based on what you feel at the time. Right, like right now, as we're having this conversation, I was just talking to someone about um, as Roe v. Wade is potentially about to be um, removed after 50 years of women's having um, reproduction rights, it's, it has the high probability that <laughs> it might be removed. It's a very, very strange, terrifying time to be a woman. Um, so you're seeing people, hundreds of people outside of the houses doing vigils overnight at the judges' houses. And I raised the question, if the goal is, what's the goal? What's the end game? If the goal is to get judges to switch their positions, is the most effective strategy to put them on the defensive and stand in front of their house, chanting and yelling at them over and over again, to what degree, when have you ever changed your mind on an issue? Because hundreds of people yelled at you in front of your house and said, you should do what we do, and we're gonna make sure it's televised, we're gonna make sure everyone knows and you better agree with us. Like, when have you ever changed your mind? Like, I'm talking internally. You've changed your mind privately because someone forced you to agree with them without having an argument for the pain and suffering people had and, have a, and giving you a chance to speak and have a direct, you know, back and forth conversation. You may have changed your mind publicly, but that gets back to preference falsification. You'll believe what you believe, but you know, like, all right, let me get them to stop yelling and harassing me. So I'm just going to say what you want me to say. But when clo behind closed doors, are these judges going to change their opinion? All evidence, sociological and psychological evidence says because you put them into a corner, they're going to come out scratching your eyes out and they're not going to physically assault you. 
they are going to double down and be even further entrenched in their issue. So I raised this question, and now I'm getting kind of, you know, to some degree people are like, do you not support women's rights? I'm like, no, no, no. I'm just talking about what are effective forms of social activism and effective forms of dissent. If you want attention, if that's your end game, you're getting it. If you want to change people's positions, we know from persuasion and influence that forcing someone to try to do it when they get to do it, when their decision is going to be made privately, is not the most effective way of doing it. Mm -hmm. So one last question, and this will take us all the way back to the beginning of our conversation when I asked you about uh, how you defined insubordination and what was productive and unproductive insubordination, good and bad insubordination, and also adding to that when I asked you about the benefits of conformity, uh, when is insubordination too much? It's, it's a good, it's a really good question. I think, you know, I really like, um, is it John Rawls or John, John Rawls talks about the veil of ignorance mm -hmm. and it's this philosophical system, which is you, how you modify groups and systems based on, based on the idea that you might be randomized and you don't know where you're going to be in the system. So I might, so we might uh, decide like, Hey, you know what? We want to get rid of tenure in organizations and in academia. So we have to, but, but we have, when we think about this, we have to think randomized. Am I going to be a grad student, a first year professor, someone with tenure who once had tenure? When you, when you, when you think about that, your position might be randomized. You think more about all the players in the system. And when you think about raising minimum wage, you have to think of, okay, you can be randomized. Ricardo, you might end up being the CEO with an eight figure salary. You may end up being a, um, a middle-level worker who's really moving fast up the ranks to making six and seven-figure salaries. You might end up being an illegal alien working in the company. You might be an intern. Um, you might be um, an administrative assistant barely making ends meet that happened there. When we think about the veil of ignorance about a system, it's more likely that we're going to engage in behaviors that are going to be leaned towards being principled versus being unprincipled. And I think it's a nice philosophical framework to bring into the conversation when we think about is dissent, are we going too far or too little, is to think about um, that our position in the system might be randomized. And let's think about all the, all the, all the roles that we might end up being in in that system. Yeah. So I think that's a good note to end on. The book is again, The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. I will be leaving a link to it in the description box of the interview. Uh, apart from the book, where can people find you and your work on the internet? Uh, well, I've got an unusual last name. So toddcashin.com, you can find everything. And uh, on my website, you'll find, uh, you can access my, my newsletter, Provoked, which is free, where I like to talk about all the bizarre norms that are dysfunctional in society. You write a book about dysfunctional norms, you find a problem every single day that can be fixed in society. Okay, great. So I will also be leaving some links to that. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been really fun to talk to you. Oh my God, you ask fantastic questions. You are, you are royalty when it comes to the world of dissent. Oh my God, thank you so much for the kind words. 
And thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been really fun to talk to you. Oh my God, you ask fantastic questions. You are, you are royalty when it comes to the world of descent. <laughs> oh my God, thank you so much for the kind words. Hi guys, thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like, hit the subscription button, all of those things you already know. And please consider supporting the show either on PayPal or Patreon. All of the links will be in the description box of the interview starting at $1 per month. So it would be a great help. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters. Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbord, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Vosbo, Weingard, Rebecca Neuberger, Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Narcio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, George Pinha, Phil Kavana, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Dugny, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Kassan, Evan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslem Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dremiti Grigoriev, Diego Lanonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Saima Fzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortes, Ursula Litzke, Denise Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy and Trader in NYC. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vangnagdam, Curtis Dixon, John Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Giddy, Sardos France, Thomas Trumbull and Nun Welder. And my executive producers, Michel Rogieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.